we are in prime camping season, and if you are a seasoned outdoors person, chances are you have used some of the award-winning tents and innovative products made by the New Hampshire company run by today's guest. I'm Matt Mowry, editor of Business NH Magazine. And I'm Nathan Carroll, founder and president of Cardinal Consulting, and welcome to BizCast NH. As a family, or uh, either as a family or before kids, were you into camping or anything, you know, hiking, camping, anything outdoors? I was never what you call an outdoor cat. Okay. Uh, but outdoor my cat. wife has, has, <laughs> has, has made me one. Um, so when we were initially married and had no money, um, you know, she started playing vacation. She's like, let's go camping. And I'm like, Huh? I have an indoor plumbing here. Why am I going outdoors? <laughs> and so, but she was very um, methodical. And so oh. for birthdays and all that, she kept requesting camping gear until I could not come up with an excuse not to go. <laughs> when she's like, we have a giant tent. We have an air mattress. She goes, I can't make this more indoor experience for you. She is strategic. She like is. That. And great. so we did. And I have to say, I did enjoy it to the point where... Um, we took a vacation with uh, some great college friend from ours, another couple, and we spent a week camping um, in the Bay of Fundy area in Canada, which I'd never done that long before. I'm not sure I would do it again. I'm not made for it, but it was fun. Mm. Although it was interesting, when we finally got to the campground, after we went through customs and they confiscated our firewood and our potatoes, which was already like, what? Oh, no. <laughs> right, right. That like, firewood. I felt like deal. a criminal coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time we got there, it was nighttime and we had a campsite on a bluff. So we're, oh, wow. we're setting up in the dark on a cliff and I'm like, this is just a recipe <laughs> yep. for disaster. Yep. The rain's about to come. But oh, it God. actually been, it was a, a great trip and it was, you know, there's just something about cooking outdoors and being around the fire at night and just relaxing and talking and and being really present yeah and in a way that you're not when you're you know at home yeah in front of your TV how your about phone you and- are you are you a, a big outdoors person <laughs> well um I don't know how much I've mentioned this here on the podcast but so I moved to New Hampshire to work outdoors and for a season for two seasons actually um, summer seasons I lived in a canvas tent on a wooden platform um, and I did things like get ready people poop in the woods yes right it happens it happens i was also like up on top of mountains and on trails and here and there and it's a um it's a really amazing experience when you're just like you're hiking 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 and then you're like like wait a minute oh my god that is the top oh god we're here you know and so there's something special about it um do i love camping out (sighs) i mean I wouldn't say I love it, no, um, but it is special for sure. Um, I haven't done it with my wife and my kids yet. My son, always, who's who, as listeners know, is uh, has just turned six and um, has been asking to go camping. And I'm like, all right, we've got a tent. We've got everything we need. We'll try the backyard first because chances are- It's a good test ground. It is, right, because we can always go inside back to our comfy bed if we don't like it. Right, so we'll try that at some point. But I um, very quickly, and then we'll get to the actual interesting story, which is our guest this week. Um, but when I first met my wife, we went out to Lenox, Mass, to a concert at Tanglewood, and we, we very similarly like had no money, and we're like, oh, we'll just you know get a little campsite and stay out there. So I brought the tent, and I brought you know a few few other things, not enough other things. So I brought like one like sort of okay sleeping pad and one really not okay sleeping pad in one tent. And of course we didn't find the campsite until after the show. So we set it all up in the dark and my poor wife had to like sleep on a route all night, wakes up in the morning is like, I am so stiff. I just want to go home. Take me away from here. You know? And I'm like, (laughs) I mean, well, and we weren't married then, but we are now. I was going to say, so it it survived the first Or she forgot. I don't know. But it was, and, and it was painful. Like the poor girl, she was like, no, I just need to go home. It all hurts. I want out of here. I'm like, okay, so we haven't tried again yet. 
So you need it, the lesson is you need the right equipment. Yes, and that's the what lesson, we're going to talk and about that today. Is the sickest segue we've had in quite some time. Cam Brensinger is our guest this week. He is fu- he founded Nemo Equipment in 2002 and serves as its CEO and lead innovator. Cam graduated from RISD's Industrial Design Program in 2002 with distinction, receiving the Thomas Lamb Scholarship Award. Since its founding, Nemo Equipment has received numerous awards for design and innovation, including Best Inventions of the Year by Time and Popular Science Magazines and the Innovation Rocks Award from the New Hampshire Department of Resources and Economic Development, now the BEA, and many more. He currently lives with his wife and two young children in Stratum, New Hampshire, where he occasionally escapes into his woodshop to build furniture or renovate their house. Cam, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I, I, I have to say I chuckled through your introduction because it captured really the, the raison d'etre of Nemo perfectly. I mean, I think being outdoors, we can all agree there's something special to it. We belong there, but it's eliminating the obstacles to it, making it fun, convenient, providing a great night's sleep. That's why we're here. So it was perfect intro. Thank you. Beautiful, for that. beautiful. Well, I'm glad that we um, didn't plan it to be a perfect intro at all, but it worked out. Um, but let's uh, let's get to to this story. Um, and I, so what I was going to say, because you had submitted a, a bio to me, which was, I, I get a lot of those obviously in preparation for the show. Some of them are a few sentences, some of them are a few pages. This one was sort of right at the, the other end of that, where there was a lot of information and I kept reading and I kept reading and I was like, this is so cool. This is so interesting. This guy is so interesting. I can't wait to talk to him. So, um, knowing that, and also that we had to basically take your, your, pages of bio and really interesting uh, information and success with Nemo and boil that down. Um, Just let us know sort of uh, in our listeners what Nemo is and why it's different, why it's different than, you know, the, the backpack you bought yesterday or the sleeping pad that my poor wife had to sleep on, you know, what, what is different about it? And I think um, that will lead us into a lot of other questions and stories. Yeah, right on. So what's different about Nemo? Well, it really goes back to its origins. So I, I started Nemo um, when I was a senior in design school. As you mentioned, I, I went to RISD, studied industrial design. That was actually my second time around in, in college. Yeah, I, uh, I was a physics creative writing major um, in college first time, which of course meant that I had no idea what I was going to do for a career. Um, the short of it is that I sort of serendipitously discovered product design and when I saw what that was, it was like manifest destiny. This is what I need to do. Um, so I went to RISD knowing I would start a company, kind of on a mission to start Nemo, and cool. uh, and did it as my senior project. While I was working on Nemo as my senior project, I was also employed by MIT, funded by the NASA Institute for Advanced Concepts to work on spacesuit design. Wow! So the backdrop for Nemo was, you know, I, at that time I was. Um, passionate rock and ice climber and kind of general outdoors person. And I'm working at MIT on a NASA project and studying product design in school. So I really took those ingredients and had this picture in my mind of building a brand that really merged a strong sense of design, of engineering, and of sustainability. I didn't I don't think I, I thought that word sustainability at the time. Mm. But I, but I really, you know, I, I thought hard about, you know, the fact that we would be mass producing product and we would be, our whole business would be based on people getting outdoors. And I cared a lot in the first place on what kind of impacts we would have on the environment. So that's, that's kind of the, the stage. And then, you know, I opened our first office three days after graduation from RISD oh, wow. with the with the mission of only ever bringing product to market that was different than what's out there, always um, trying to improve the experience of outdoor adventure. And uh, 20 years later and lots of adventures and missteps and learnings and growth uh, along the way, uh, here we are. So... When did you get interested in the outdoors? What sparked your passion for this? And what is it about connecting with nature that speaks to you? I think the real answer to that is, you know, depending on your philosophy and and uh, and how scientific you are, maybe four or five million years ago is where, where my uh, <laughs> the origins of my love of being outdoors came from. 
Um, you know, I, I, I truly do believe it, it's something in us as human beings. Just, you know, I, when I was in school uh, at RISD in Providence, there's this wonderful community event in Providence called Waterfire. Oh, uh, many of your listeners yeah. may have heard of, hopefully have been to. It's a perfect example of this, right? Because tens of thousands of people come from all around to stand there and watch fire mm -hmm. and listen to music. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just wired into <laughs> us, you know? <laughs> Who doesn't appreciate a beautiful sunset or have a calming feeling when they're, you know, listening to ocean waves, you know, hitting the beach? It's just, I believe it's something in us. I discovered that in myself when I was pretty young, um, playing in the woods as a kid. Uh, it really was stoked by my middle school um, uh, outing club. And then when I got to college uh, in Vermont, at Middlebury in Vermont, um, I became a passionate rock and ice climber and mountaineer and just kind of went, you know, head first into it. And so when you went to start Nemo, you know, you, you got into product design. There's a lot of different ways you could have gone. What made you, what, what sparked in you that entrepreneurial spirit that I can design better for an industry that's been around for eons? Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, it, it took me a bunch of years of Nemo to really have confidence that I could do Nemo. Um, so there's not really a simple, that wasn't a, like a switch that flipped in my head, you know, that, that I can do this. But I, um, I grew up son of an architect and my mom is, is quite artistically talented. So from being a little kid, um, you know, I did art classes at the Courier Art Gallery in Manchester and always pursued art through school and things. So, you know, I, I had some background in, in drawing and, and was always good at making things um, and always loved making things. So it was really in, you know, coming out of Middlebury, um, realizing, thinking about, okay, now I got, I've got to have a career. I got, you know, I'm a grown up now. I've graduated from college. There's not a roof over my head anymore. What am I going to do with my life? How do I link all these things together? My love of being outdoors, of physics, of writing, of making things um, that led me down the path of um, writing a business plan for Nemo. And I wrote this pretty terrible, you know, rudimentary <laughs> business plan and, uh, and showed it to my dad, um, who spared telling me that it was a terrible <clears throat> business plan and was the first person in my life to say the words industrial design. He said, you should check out industrial design. And I uh, never heard of it. When I looked at it, you know, on the internet, that's when I had this, this awakening of, okay, that, that's what I need to do. It kind of merges all of these things together. It's a bit of science. It's a bit of art. It's making stuff. And I can do it in service of outdoor adventure. Like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Cool. Um, so, but to that end, and maybe we back up just a little bit for some foundational information for our listeners, but industrial design is, doesn't just uh, obviously apply to outdoor equipment and things like that. What are um, others, say, in industrial design doing or designing? What, um... Yeah, yeah, good question. Well, and today, so, so first of all, yes, uh, industrial design, product design are synonymous. Mm -hmm. um, industrial makes it sound like it would be bridges and things like that, mm. machinery, but it's, it's all mass-produced products uh, falls under industrial design. Cool. Industrial designers design everything today. I mean, Everything you can see around us, essentially, um, you know, from water bottles and wallets and cell phones uh, to furniture, cars, um, you name it. Every, essentially, every mass-produced consumer product is industrial designed. Whether there's a dedicated professional doing a great job of that, or it's you know, sort of happens almost by accident. Nice. And through being an industrial designer and, and everything that you've designed and, and are coming up with for, for Nemo and otherwise, um, you now have over, is it a hundred patents and trademarks? Yeah. I don't even know the count at this point. We, <laughs> it's we probably have, rising, right? Yeah. We have quite a few issued um, patents and trademarks and, and lots more in queue. It's, you know, we think of ourselves as, as more like a industrial design and engineering firm with a brand than even a conventional brand. Like we're so centered around um, making unique product. 
And I think for the average consumer, I mean, they would not automatically associate tents and sleeping bags and outdoor gear with innovation. But you really have set about to have an innovation company. You've be, and, and, and you've developed this very well-known brand, especially in, in you know the outdoors community. Um, can you talk about what makes your products different and the type of design work that go into them? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, in the first place, I would say... Um, I can understand in this technology-driven world that we're in, you know, thinking of a tent or a sleeping bag is kind of rudimentary compared to the magic of a cell phone. But in the first place, creating those products and solutions, um, you know, the the folks and brands um, who've done that over the last century, largely, uh, all of what we consider kind of modern outdoor equipment is pretty new, ultimately. They were pretty inventive and creative. I mean, you know, if you consider you know, a, a, a tent, a backpacking tent as it, as it stands today with lightweight alloy, uh, aluminum tent poles and incredibly gossamer thin fabrics. I mean, we can build a two person tent that'll keep you comfortable at two pounds. I mean, that has taken quite a bit of, um, creativity and, and thought process along the way, um, to get to that place. What makes our stuff different is sometimes macro level things. Like for example, we have a chair called the Stargaze chair, which is the only swinging and auto reclining chair, to my knowledge, on the planet. Um, certainly in the form factor of something that weighs a few pounds and can mm. be easily carried. Um, so it's, you know, it's it's a different idea. Um, but oftentimes, too, it's it's small things. It's, you know, creating a, a new fabric that has another level of performance or a set of TED hardware that's just more reliable, easier to use, um, or small, you know, thoughtful innovations um, around the functionality of something. Like, for example, we make the only what we call spoon-shaped sleeping bags. They're wider at your shoulders mm-hmm. and your knees, or at your elbows and your knees, so that you can lay in a side sleeping position. Before we made those bags, the only bag shape was really mummy bags, oh, mummy bag, rectangular yep. bags. Yep. You know, so, <laughs> and then on top of that, we add what we call thermogills, which are openings in the bag that release heat, but without allowing a draft in. So they're not they're not the same as kind of fully unzipping the bag where you'd get a draft in, mm. but they they allow the insulation to be parted and still preserve a little layer of fabric. And that allows uh, more temperature, usable temperature range for the sleeping bag. So you can be comfortable over say 20, 30, 40 degrees of temperature swing. That's a nice improvement um, for a a backpacker. So it covers the gamut really, the Mm. the kinds of innovations that we're working on. And I think that I'm I'm listening to you and uh, describe these products having used a very, very old backpack or a uh, relatively new backpack, having the, you know, the, the crappy sleeping pad and the okay tent. And I think it's the innovation of anybody, you know, even if you're, if you camp a few times a year and, but for years we've just, you know, settled for the mummy bag or we've settled for the rectangular bag. But now those people who are, are passionate and are doing this and want something better have Nemo to turn to because of the innovation that you've, that you've put into these products. Because I'm just listening going, these are all amazing. I sleep on my side in a sleeping bag and, you know, and I would love to not have to unzip it. And so it's clearly the innovation that is bringing these individuals who for years have just said, fine, this is what I can get to your market. That's, I love that. And, yeah. and I think that some sums it up really well. So I think you nailed it, Nathan. You know, imagine, I mean, just, you know, part of why I chuckled at your, at your intro is because, <laughs> you know, you're essentially using the picture I have in my head anyway, is you're essentially using gear that's basically 20 years old and it's idea, you know, whether, whether mm-hmm. you bought it two years ago or not, right, um, right. you know, you're, you're not using the state. Imagine using a 20 year old cell phone today. Right. I mean, our industry, like every industry, is, what a great analogy yeah. has has come a long way, and it's accelerating. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know we're like everyone. Our skills get more specialized. We're having to beat our own best ideas, everyone else's best ideas. So the state of the art today for camping, I think, resolves a lot of the the challenges that both of you guys described in terms of making things easier to set up, more comfortable for a night's sleep. Um, you know, really just in general, more of a pleasure to use getting rid of the obstacles so you can really enjoy the the best parts of being outdoors. 
Cool. So Cam, who is your, your typical or average customer and how do you make sure you stay connected to them that you're innovating in ways that they need you to? Great question. You know, and our, our typical customer has really changed a lot. Um, it's changed over the last 20 years, but it's especially changed in the last few years with the pandemic. So when I started Nemo, um, I would say, just speaking frankly, our industry was pretty exclusive. You know, ability to purchase the gear you need for, say, real long distance backpacking or mountaineering, it's expensive stuff. Um, and, you know, we were speaking sort of in an insular way to ourselves as an industry. And, uh, and we've, as an industry, gotten smarter about that um, in an effort to kind of be more inclusive over the years. But especially in the last couple of years with the pandemic and watching something like eight or 10 uh, million new participants in camping and oftentimes in the backyard uh, over the last couple of years has really opened the eyes um, of, of brands like Nemo. Um, and, and so today we're really doubling down on a community focused effort to kind of make our, our brand less intimidating to provide on ramps, um, of information for newbies. So today to, you know, to sort of really answer in a concrete way, we serve, our brand serves everyone from sort of the top of the pyramid elite mountaineer to the family that just wants to enjoy a nice night out in the backyard. And what was the pandemic like for your company? I mean, a lot of companies were struggling during it, but as you point out, this was a time when people reconnected with the outdoors because that's where you could go safely for entertainment. What did that mean for Nemo? Well, I think we had the same disruptions in the first couple months, you know, after March of 2020 as, as probably everyone. Um, but we had a huge silver lining over the last few years, as you're suggesting, of this significantly increased demand. I mean, you know, so many more people, I would say discovering or rediscovering back to something we talked about at the start of this, which is just that visceral enjoyment of being outdoors. I mean, that was, I remember seeing Pew Research data that showed that going outdoors was second only to television um, for <laughs> what we turned to for a bit of salvation mm -hmm. during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, how many people did did we see out in, our, in just neighborhoods just taking walks? Um, so, you know, that has been great for our industry and has often been the case. Historically, our the outdoor industry does well during recessions. You know, when people decide to look inward a little bit, save a few dollars, spend more time with their family, um, camping does great. On the other hand, there have been lots of challenges over the last few years related to the pandemic. I mean, at, at first for us, it was, you know, turning off our supply because we didn't know there would be any demand. Um, and then it was turning it back on again. And for the last couple of years, you know, there have been major logistics challenges, just, you know, moving product we sell around the world, moving product around the world um, has had lots of challenges. And, um, you know, when I first came into contact with your company a few years ago and we were going to do a story, I'm like, uh, you know, setting up the interview, I was imagining like, oh, it's this, you know, cool outdoor company. I'm probably going to go in the hinterland somewhere. And then I'm like, oh, they're in a mill building in Dover, one of the fastest growing cities in New Hampshire. So let's start with why Dover and what, how has being in Dover helped your company to, to grow? Yeah, easy answer. I mean, it was two <laughs> things. Um, the mill building is is why Dover. We we started out in a mill building in Nashua and just love the character of the the old mills, which is you know one of the many wonderful assets we have in New Hampshire. Um, is these you know old wonderful old mill towns, usually on rivers, you know that powered the mills, which just adds to the charm. And being close to our seacoast, I mean, many folks in our office enjoy surfing, and we're not too far uh, from Genesee Beach. So Dover's been great to us, and it, it is 
growing quickly and it's and that's brought with us it's some nice new options for lunch and uh <laughs> and some outdoor concerts across the street and and nice things like that so nice um let's we we, we have uh, talked a little bit about the product innovation but let's talk company innovation for a minute you um nemo became climate neutral certified this year 2022 um with the goal of reducing emissions in half by 2030 so i guess i have two questions about this one um what it means to be climate neutral certified. And then two, in the sense of um, your uh, what you have control over in terms of reducing emissions, because it's a lot that you probably don't, right? Something has to get from here to there on a truck or be delivered to you or produced in a certain way that maybe you can't control. So what is it that you have control over? And then are there offsets or, or how is the climate neutral certification uh, working as well? Yeah, yeah, great question. Big topic, so I'll, <laughs> I'll try to I'll try to keep it um, straightforward. So you know, I have to say it. All of this sustainability work again really goes back to the beginning for us, and actually, my realizing when I was in school that I was studying to design mass-produced product and thinking, I don't know if I love the sound of mass-produced. Mm, um, right, right. And so, really making a vow to myself that if I were going to mass produce anything that in the first place, it had to sort of deserve its place in the market. Um, it had to be unique um, and it had to be built as high quality as possible because mm -hmm. anything else that we would do uh, wouldn't be as important um, f for the environment as just extending its life, keeping it out of the landfill. So these are things we've thought about for a long time in the, in the early days of Nemo, we had some manufacturing snafus um, which led us to park a bunch of unsellable inventory in a warehouse for a while. And then we realized, you know, we could cut these things up and, and turn them into little tote bags and things like that huh. and, and give that stuff away at trade shows instead of buying little tchotchkes and things like yeah. that. Um, so that sort of, you know, added another layer to this kind of work. And then a few years ago, actually right before the pandemic, um, I was helping our industry uh, establish its climate goals um, as the chair of sustainable business innovation for our trade association. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the more I learned about those issues and thought about it, I, I thought, you know what, why can't a brand skip the kind of halfway steps and go straight to making actually sustainable product? What would that look like? And, and so I wrote a memo to our product team outlining what I thought would be the key ingredients of truly sustainable product, which which I I described as we'd need, leave no waste at the factory, we'd fully address the carbon of the product by the time it met the customer, and we'd provide circularity. So you could either recycle that product or re-commerce that product. And the coolest thing happened, which was the product team jumped on it, loved the idea, and word quickly spread in the company, and the whole company rallied behind it. So it became a, a business imperative to accomplish that. And we launch our first Endless Promise product next year. So it, it does all of those things. And as for the second part of that, kind of the addressing the carbon footprint by the time it gets to the customer, mm. we realized that the most efficient and responsible way to do that would be to just do that company-wide. So we worked with a big global agency to measure the carbon footprint of Nemo, to, to your point, sure. about just how that's complicated and yeah. much of it. Mm -hmm. In fact, 90 plus percent of our emissions happen outside of our, our, of our office um, in other parts of the world and other parts of our kind of global value chain. So we, we hired experts to measure that for us. We set a baseline in 2020 and starting this year, we have paid to remove an equivalent amount of carbon um, from what we have put into the atmosphere. So we are offsetting. Um, and as you said, our, our goal ultimately is by 2030 to cut our carbon intensity in half, which is the carbon it takes to make our products on average, we want to cut that in half. What were some of the key initiatives that you put in place in, in your pursuit of no waste and, and be, uh, making your products a more, in a more sustainable fashion? Um, and what were some of the biggest challenges you had to overcome? Were there any surprises along the way? Yeah, I mean, there, there, you know, this is what's kind of cool and, and, and intriguing about this work, honestly, is it's, it's largely white space. I mean, this is, 
you know, we've been industrial as a civilization, you know, for centuries now. Um, but we have, we've only begun to be sustainable in the last really decade or two where, there, where a lot of this work has really been started in earnest. Obviously, many of these ideas have actually been around for quite a long time, but, but a lot of this is white space. And so there's nowhere to look for a lot of these answers, which makes it kind of, you know, fun in a pioneering um, kind of way. One of the cool things that we did as part of our Endless Promise, like, you know, solving for Endless Promise, um, was in this new product, This it's actually a sleeping bag that we're launching next year. One of our most selling sleeping bags will become Endless Promise next year. For that, to address the the leaving no waste in the factory, what we ended up doing was taking all of the scraps out of the manufacturing process. Like every time a, a piece of insulation is cut or a piece of fabric is cut to, to match a pattern to go into the bag, we round up all those little bits, we reprocess them, and then insert that as insulation into uh, one of the baffles in the bag. So in the past, that just would have been rounded up and thrown away. And, and thrown away in a factory on the other side of the world can often mean bad stuff. Mm. You know? yeah. so, so that was you know, just a simple bit of creativity to deal with that. An example of a harder problem um, to solve has been making more complicated products like sleeping bags um, or tents or backpacks recyclable. Mm. To be able to take, say, a backpack and recycle that, it's typically made of a bunch of disparate materials. So you can't, you couldn't just throw that in a bin and have a sorter accept that and recycle right. it. So we've had to make these complicated products out of a single polymer, and that that has been hard work to. Um, in some cases, you know, work with partners and invent new materials, um, you know, in order to have them all be made of the same stuff. Hmm. And so uh, that spirit of innovation that really permeates the, the company and you bring it to your company culture. You've grown your company to 50 employees. Um, can you talk about what are the type of folks that you look for? You know, what is a Nemo employee look like? And then... What do you do to engage them? Yeah. Yeah, this is something we've thought a lot about. Um, you know, I've always felt like if we could just build a great team, then we will be successful. You know, if, if we have a great team, we'll make the right decisions. Assuming we have a little bit of luck, you know, we can, we can, we can pull this adventure off. Um, that's come into sharper focus in the last few years. Um, partly just, I think, as society has advanced and our thinking about being inclusive and, and the power of, you know, kind of collective intelligence and having diverse teams, those, that kind of thinking has, has advanced. And, you know, I've certainly learned alongside that. Um, but also, you know, the pandemic um, presented, you know, some hard challenges for us as it did every business and, you know, really made us count on each other um, to another level. Uh, and and so in the last couple of years, uh, as we've added um, to our team, it's been with the sharpest focus we've ever had on really drawing in a diverse set of skills and backgrounds and perspectives and talents um, and really trying to make um, a very cohesive and trusting culture um, where we can really collaborate in a high-performing way. And um, And that's, you know, the payoff for me is... There's, there's many ways that it makes it a, a, a more fun and, and successful place to work, but it's so much easier to be a good leader of great people. Um, I've just found <laughs> my job is, has just gotten easier, um, the better a team I've, I've managed to, to build around me. Nice. How big is your team now? Um, just over 50. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And so what are some of the different perks or parts of your culture you put in place that you feel really kind of define the Nemo experience for employees and, and keeps them wanting to come back for more. Yeah. Well, I think in the first place, we're lucky to be here in New England. I, I think New England, um, you know, proved itself um, one of the best places to be on the planet over the last few years, at least in our perspective. Um, you know, we have so much going for us, um, you know, whether it's it's great schools, access to the mountains, great cities, um, you know, it's, it's about the oldest part of the country and just great history here. Um, we love our whole coastline. The main coastline uh, is, I think, one of our national treasures. So, you know, certainly that's um, been part of it. 
In terms of our internal culture, I think a lot of the foundation of it is is a word I used a minute ago, which is trust. Um, mm. We've really tried to essentially recreate what I found um, was the studio atmosphere at RISD. You know, art school was a pretty special place in terms of being able to say, do, wear, think anything you wanted. And, uh, you know, getting back, getting into the outside world after art school made me appreciate just how special that was. Cause it's, it's rare that, you know, we find places in today's world where those words apply. Um, but it's in that kind of environment where I think you can really tap into your own potential, you know, when you make a, a you know, as one would say, a, a psychologically safe environment, um, you know, where people can really expe- express their potential. So being how based we are on innovation and creativity, that's been really important to us is to make a, a culture where, you know, people can share ideas and, um, and do that um, with confidence. Um, but we also have really fun elements too. We have, you know, benefits that include, we, uh, we'll reimburse people for adventures they take. Um, we, you know, we fund um, getting out and helping in the community. Um, we do all sorts of things. We have a lot of company activities. Um, we do ski events and camping events and other outdoor stuff. So um, you take you take year. your folks camping to get we to know do. one another. And, <laughs> yeah, we do. Um, and you're, I should mention that you're among this year's best companies to work for. Uh, uh, congratulations on that for making the, the our list here in New Hampshire. Um, can you t- can you talk about, you know, I think one of the unique aspects of the culture is that you find ways to connect people not only to that love of outdoors and the mission, but also find ways of making um, them have, helping employees connect to the product. And so what are some of the, the things that you, you you mentioned about funding adventures? Can you explore that a little bit more about what you do and, and how you encourage employees to, to get to know the product and their love of nature better. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone, you, you know, we don't, unlike a lot of adventure based companies, we don't have any prerequisites for kind of your climbing resume or your mountaineering. We don't require that people be quote, hardcore outdoorsy. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we care a lot more. About, you don't require that they be able to shred the gnar and things like that. <laughs> no, Come on. No. <laughs> uh, we care a lot more about kind of professional talent and cultural fit. Um, but you know, we do require that everyone love the outdoors, you know, and I don't think anyone would really be too interested in in working at Nemo if they didn't on some level. Mm. Um, So we share that in the first place. So I'd say everyone there has their own way that they love to be outside, you know, whether that's again, in the backyard with their kids, or it's shredding the gnar, there we uh, go. <laughs> or ice climbing, rock climbing, mountaineering, you name it, um, <laughs> kite surfing, you know, kayaking, uh, surfing, you know, on down the list, sportsman activities, hunting, fishing, um, everybody brings their own stories. Our, the benefit that I mentioned before, we call GoFar, and basically um, we will reimburse trip expenses that involve overnights with our gear in the in the U.S. and abroad. It's a higher rate at a, you know abroad, knowing that that travel is more expensive. It's simply in exchange for you take a few good photos while you're there and write a little blog story so you can share kind of with our community what you've been up to. Cool. Um, but we do that and many other things uh, to really encourage um, folks to get out and to get out using our gear because. At the end of the day, you're going to be the best customer service person or product engineer or designer really knowing how this stuff works. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, before we have to close, again, I feel like we could just talk for hours <laughs> about the company and about you, but I want to know a few things here. Um, number one, a real quick nuts and bolts thing. Where can our listeners find Nemo equipment? Is it by direct from you or at retailers as well or both? Both. We'd prefer you go to our retailers, actually, and support our retail partners. We have um, hundreds of stores around the U.S. and, and many countries around the world. So most uh, most of your local um, outdoor specialty stores uh, should carry Nemo. Nice, nice. Um, and then also, let's, uh, let's capture this a little bit. Um, we've captured, again, a lot about the, the company and you professionally, but um, who are you when you're at home with your family? What do you guys do? 
Good question. That's evolved a bit. Um, my wife and I uh, met as rock climbers. We were pretty serious climbers before we had kids. Uh, we used to do motorcycle adventures to climb, both of which we've decided are too risky now. To, to, to <laughs> with small children, so. Well, let's just take yeah. the SUV and go do something. Yeah, yeah we're, risky. A, we're a lot tamer these days. But, you know, we, we have a piece of land up in Maine um, that when we bought uh, had nothing on it. Mm. And we've since entirely ourselves you know, built out a, a wall tent, uh, Nathan, which you, you can envision, um, on a nice platform and, uh, and a dining pavilion and barn and treehouse and so on. So that's, that's, that kind of, we, we do other things, but I'd say in a lot of ways that tells the story because yeah. it's really about being in the woods, making things, um, camping, spending nights outside and, cool. and kind of adventures that come with that. Cool. Well, ice and rock climbing. What attracted you? To you in the first place because that just scares the bejesus out of me. Um, and what are some of the more exotic locales you've been in? And what are some of the hairy situations you might have gotten oh, yourself into? Yeah, well, you guys keep asking questions that have long answers, yeah. but I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> and I'll that's try okay. to make it real short. Um, <laughs> Don't worry about you know, it. You know, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure that some of what drew me to it in the first place was the reaction that you have to it, Matt, <laughs> you know, because there's a piece of me that's always been a little rebellious and wanted to be different, didn't want to be the the normal team sports guy, um, maybe because I was terrible at basketball and just wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't have been good at a lot Could of those things. I don't maybe. know. But, but also I, I think there is something I've been aware in me that likes being out on my own, making my own path. And uh and I didn't go right from not ice climbing to ice climbing big waterfalls. I mean, that's a, you know, was a step-by-step journey kind of building up skill and comfort. But I've, you know, I, I've had some sticky moments. I'd say the most dramatic place I've been is Icefields Parkway in Alberta, um, which has thousand plus foot walls of ice. Wow. Um, if you can imagine the scale of that. Um, I did break my leg free soloing, which I do not recommend. It was not a good choice. Wow. Um, uh, ice climbing years ago up in northern Vermont and ended up suspended upside down from my broken leg and then <gasps> had to crawl for two miles through the snow. Um, so anyway, there's I've had I've had my share of little scrapes <laughs> okay, like wait, that. Wait, so wait, our mouths are wide open wait, going, what? I broke my leg, <laughs> suspended from it, crawled two miles through the snow. But let's move on. No, 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 no. <laughs> How, what was going through your mind during that experience and what got you through it? You know, it's, it's hard to envision this, although we all have our own stories this way, but I'm going to use another outdoor adventure as an analogy. So I was also into spelunking for a while, caving. Mm. And uh, when I was at school in Vermont, there, I want to say there were 250, 260 solution caves in Vermont. There's this whole kind of little network of, of, modest size up to a couple of miles of passage um, caves scattered throughout the state. And uh, and so we explored a lot of these and we were just a bunch of college kids. We didn't have a guide showing it. So it was a lot of learning as we went. Um, when I look back on that now, I think about it the same way you just described of why, why did I do like, there were a lot <laughs> of world? times when I, when I was going through a passage so tight, I had to remove my helmet to, to squeeze through, you know, and you're hundreds of feet underground, half a mile into something, having to hold your breath and squeeze through a, a tiny crawl space to get to air on the other side. I mean, when I think about that now, it's like, why did I, what? F- <laughs> but when you're, when you're in that environment, our brains just have this incredible ability to adapt, right? Mm. I mean, whether it's to health challenges we have, relationship, professional challenge, I mean, we put ourselves in adverse situations all the time and our brains adjust to it. Um, I've just found that with some of these. So when I, when I broke my leg in Vermont, I was in the moment. It was just like, this is what I got to deal with. You know, it was yeah. as big a deal as it seems right now. <laughs> right. Wow. So what, from those experiences, how have you brought that into your professional life? What are the, what, what have you found out about yourself through these outdoor adventures that have allowed you to move forward and be successful in the ventures you have in your other parts of your life? Well, two things. I mean, most directly, I would say it's 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 those outdoor experiences that inform our design and engineering at Nemo. And, and something that is different about Nemo today, although 
just about every outdoor brand was started by a founder who was an authentic outdoors person. And, and this was true, like this was true of any outdoor brand you would name right now, 20 or 30 years ago. Today, a lot of those brands have become big companies and the people in charge aren't necessarily designers and outdoors people themselves sometimes, but, but often may not be. In our case, I mean, I'm, I am the CEO, but I'm still very engaged on the product side and I bring my own experience of adventure to that process. So that, that's of a direct benefit, but I'd say, you know, less tangibly, um, you know, I, I learned a, a certain kind of stick to it, stick to itiveness and, and grit from those experience a pain tolerance, I guess, um, <laughs> you know, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and the, you know, I certainly learned the reward of going out on a path on your own and, and getting to a place not many people have been and, and just how that feels. Um, and that's definitely what we're trying to do with Nemo. Cool. Well, I think that's, there's probably a thousand more stories you could tell and questions we could ask, but um, want to simply say thank you for joining us, for telling your story, uh, for being innovative and, uh, and changing, I would say, an industry. So Cam Brensinger is founder, CEO, and lead innovator of Nemo Equipment. Thanks for joining us. My absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, guys, and thanks so much for the recognition of our business. And now the buzz. So Nathan, mm -hmm. I have had to pop some popcorn for th <laughs> this uh -oh. latest story, which was is what everyone has been buzzing about mm -hmm. um, for a few weeks, which was the whole situation at Gunstock. Oh, good lord! Which I think just had people's jaws hitting the ground as to how this developed and how running a a, a local ski resort wound up in this huge political whirlwind. And, um, you know, do, do you want to let our listeners know a bit about how, what went down? So the Bel this is sort of a, a unique thing, I would say, in New Hampshire. The Belknap County Commission um, oversees, essentially, the operation of Gunstock. Right. Gunstock has its own management, um, individuals that are on the ground that are, you know, working with the employees and all of that. But this commission oversees the overall operations and, and budgeting and, and, you know, future planning and all of that sort and of stuff. And they're appointed by the local state reps from that area. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> and then there's been, I guess, a little bit uh, too much, we'll call it, overstep, maybe, of the boundaries of this commission versus the day-to-day uh, running of things and um, all of a sudden management resigns and not just like th the general manager although he was one of them it, like all of their leadership at a, at a meeting at a, done bye-bye we're gone see ya and what happens then huge uproar in you the can't community. you can't run the business right all of a sudden the gun stock is closing closed. down which was the weirdest thing to see on the news like temporarily wait, wait, they closed in the midst of, you know, the, the, the end summer, of their season. summer season, gearing up for their winter season. I mean, this is a, a big time and not a time you want to have your key staff walking out on you. Um, it was just so unheard of. Um, and it was this tension that had been building um, over quite a bit of time between some of the commissioners who felt their oversight responsibilities, um, you know, required them to really be on top of the management mm -hmm. and really kind of getting involved in the nitty-gritty day-to-day running to make sure that the, the public's money was being spent well. And you then have these professional um, executive leading it that are feeling like they're being encroached on by people with a political bent oh, completely. as to you know what they want to accomplish mm -hmm. and weren't interfering with their ability to run this as the business that they're trying to create and, and, and build. And so they became at this loggerheads to the point where then you had this dramatic walkout mm -hmm. um, during this public meeting. And then the governor got involved, was criticizing, uh, you know, the reps for yeah. being involved. There was calls for resignation. Some 
resign. Some didn't want to resign. Right, right. Until like the bloody end, you know? And then to the point where resignations happen, they're trying quickly to fill those seats so that Gunstock can continue to function. The executive team decided they, they, in that case, they would come back and, 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 and try and get operations resuming again. Yeah. But But it was just this, it, but it, the fact that it played out so publicly. Right. Right, uh, people was you know, amazing showing up to these meetings and and really, I mean, and yeah, I was I was just sort of blown away and also like saddened a little bit. So we, our guests, always talk about hiring people that are smarter than yourself, mm-hmm. right? And that's essentially what this is. And you know, being sort of like, okay, we've got the right team in place, let's let them handle it. Lord knows, if this place is burning down and there's things happening that shouldn't be happening, yeah, step in. But you know what? Otherwise, get the hell out of the way, folks. Right. And it's such, you know, I think that was what, once you got over the drama of it, yeah. you know, there was a lot of leadership lessons to be learned mm. from this incident, which is one, exactly, you know, if you've got the right team in place, as yeah. you said, let them do their job. Don't don't micromanage them right. to the point that you you are driving them away, where you are interfering with the business. Um, it also gets to that culture. You know, mm-hmm. do you have a culture where people feel respected and engaged and able to do their job? Right. Um, and uh, you, you know, and we saw that you know these power plays that were happening, and that these um, you know volunteers who were appointed, um, or you know people that are appointed from an outside. And yeah, it's important. I mean, we have a government entity involved that there's oversight. Sure, but, you know, oversight. It's drawing right. that line right. between oversight uh-huh. and interference. Right, exactly. And you see that happen exactly. in the nonprofit because world as well. We have well, a board overseeing right. a professional right. executive. Yes, it's important that that relationship is both cooperative, mm-hmm. but that. The one side, the b- board, is doing its job of overseeing and right. making overseeing. sure that what's happening yeah. should be happening. Blending counsel as needed, things but like that. But then yep. knowing you have an executive in place for right. a reason, yeah. and if they are able to do their job well, then you trust in them to do that job while providing the nest- right. the doing your due diligence. Yeah, and Tom Day, in this case, is no schlub. The man has decades of experience in this business, and it's like, stay out of the way. Just let them do what they're doing, and they're doing it well, and he's got great vision for the mountain, and um, stay out of the way. And that's essentially, <laughs> in the end, um, what has happened. So the, the, the two uh, commissioners in question have resigned. Um, they had to have at least three to run um, the, you know, to, to make the decision to reopen, uh, and they've they've got that all squared away. They are reopened to to have the rest of their summer season, including concerts and and you know outdoor activities and things like that. Um, but I hope that there's been some lessons learned. Here. Yes, because when you have an erosion of trust, mm. this is the type of implosion that can happen in an organization. Right, and, and so hopefully they're back on track. Um, but uh, that is certainly what we've been buzzing about this week. Sure is. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. Check out the Cardinal blog and learn about our services at cardinalconsultingnh.com. We're on social at Cardinal Consulting NH. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a joint production of Business New Hampshire Magazine and Cardinal Consulting.